Acts 15 is where you're going to be. I can pretty much rest assured you've never heard a sermon on Acts 15. And there's a reason. Um, the reason is, it is a, it's, Acts 15 is about uh, two things. It's about a theological debate. And who doesn't like that? I mean, who doesn't like people bickering back and forth at each other and trying to figure out finer points of theology, right? Anybody in here not just love? Yeah, nope. People don't find that. It's typically kind of boring, all right? People are like, ah, just save it or give me it in a nutshell. Uh, but amazingly, what you're going to see in this chapter is uh, not only is it, it, it expresses to some degree why and in some ways God has shown favor to us over the last several decades in particular. Uh, it's also a challenge we've got to take up virtually every single week uh, as well. And what you'll see is, believe it or not, as we go through this, it's going to answer some questions that, that you do have, all right? You're not sure how to answer like, okay, what's the role of politics in a church, all right? What's, the, what's that role in there? All right. Uh, what, what's the deal about social drinking? And what if I have a disagreement about social drinking with somebody, you know, even, you know, in my, in my connect group or, uh, you know, how, why did, why did, why do we not use Baptist very much in our name anymore? You're like, that is all in Acts. Actually, actually it is. It really is. The principle is at least. So here's, here's where we are. Um, for four weeks, uh, we've been in the book of Acts. I think it's four. I think this is week five. We've got a couple of more uh, as well. Couple of, it's, it's been reintroducing, reaffirming, uh, saying this is, how, this is what the book of Acts teaches a church is supposed to be about. And it's a challenge to us as a church congregationally, and it's also a challenge to you individually. If you're a Christ follower, then you and I are the church, all right? The church is not the building. The church is not the screens. The church is you, all right? And if you're a Christ follower, then if you do it enough times, that's what the church actually does. And so we are following on the heels of 12 men 2,000 years ago who were very ordinary people. You had 12, you had, you know, carpenters, fishermen, tax collectors, and then the most extraordinary, largest religious movement in history came from them. And God gave them two things. Number one, they had a strong conviction that Jesus was who he said he was. When he rose up out of that tomb, everything changed for them. So they had a strong conviction that Jesus was the sinless son of God, died in our place, rose from the grave, and that changed everything. That's number one they had. And number two, what they had is they had the Holy Spirit of God. When they embraced Christ through repentance and faith, God gave them the person of the Holy Spirit to equip and empower them and to build his church. And so that has not uh, gone away. The book of Acts we've talked about before actually doesn't really have an ending. Why? Because you and I are not supposed to just look back at a movement. We are supposed to be the movement. And today is one that those questions are going to, it's about how do you how do you unify around the centrality of the gospel? How do we do that? Uh, this church is actually about 130 years old, and some of you didn't even know that. Others of you, it's like the last 30 have almost been kind of a breath of fresh air. And as I, I thought about our church so much as I looked through this passage, never preached this passage before ever in my ministry, and going through it has been just like, ah, oh, now it takes some work to get there. All right, so we're going to do about 10 minutes of some work in the text and then we're going to get to some application at the end. But we got to kind of understand, what do we, we always talk about when you study the Bible, you say, what does it mean then? What does it mean now? And then what does it mean to me personally? That's like the three rules of Bible study. What does it mean then? All right, there's some cultural hurdles we're going to have to jump over. What does it mean then? What does it mean now in our day and time, the transferable principle? And then what does it mean to you individually and us congregationally? So let's just, uh, let's jump in. Acts 15, verse 1. Now this first one, you're going to go, man, that didn't... That looks kind of weird. Now, again, there's a lot of cultural issues. I will do my best to explain them. Acts 15, 1. 
But some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, all right? So again, brothers is the word for Christians here, all right? So we're talking about Christians and some people are teaching them some stuff. And here's what they're teaching them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, uh, you cannot be saved. You're like, that, that, that's what we're talking about today? Let me, let, me, let me put it into context. On opening day of Christian uh, of the church, on opening day, Thousands of people embrace Christ through repentance and faith. Thousands do. The vast majority of those people were Jewish as their heritage. Their heritage, their history, their customs, their tradition, all that was all Jewish. And so Jewish people with that history, the Old Testament, when they came to faith in Christ, it was not as, they saw that as a fulfillment of all the stuff in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus Christ, as we've talked, the Old Testament talks about Jesus just like the New Testament does. And the Jewish people saw that not so much as something completely new, they saw it as a fulfillment of what all of the Old Testament was pointing toward. But before long, the message of the gospel overflowed into non-Jewish areas. Now, when you see the word Gentile in the Bible, just think non-Jewish. I would say 95% of us here, we would be in the Gentile camp. I know we've got some, some uh, Jewish brothers and sisters here as well, but the idea is Gentile, the gospel started going to them, and people were like, well, what do I do? How do what do I deal with the Jewish customs at all? And so what happened is uh, when they heard and believed, they wanted to join the church, they wanted to join the Jesus gathering that were made up primarily of Jews, who saw Jesus as, quote, their Messiah. And so the question really on the floor was, how can somebody, how can somebody be a Christian? How can somebody participate in the church without, how do you follow a Jewish Messiah without becoming Jewish? That was kind of the cultural question. It's, if it's a Jewish faith and it was just a completion of a Jewish faith, how then does a Gentile, one of us, how do we actually become part of that? And so what the what some of the people who came out of that custom were teaching was, well, you've got to kind of become Jew. And you're like, well, that's not a big deal. What do you got to do? Just memorize a verse? And that would be pretty simple. I mean, that's a simple answer. Just become Jewish and Christian. And so just, you know, is it just memorizing a verse? Is it just giving up bacon? I mean, what would it, what would it be? Now, what the text is saying here is pretty clear is that at least for men, you would have to have some surgery, all right? Now, I know there's a lot of, it's like, you know, what does that mean? Just ask your parents when you get home. But the idea is circumcision in the Old Testament was God's way to say this was a God-given sign that those are my covenant people, those are my chosen people, these are not. And so that was actually a very physical sign, obviously, that you were to be separated from, from the other people. But the, you can imagine the... Uh, you imagine the starting points in that place? You know, it's like, uh, man, they were filled with women and children, and the men are like, I'm waiting in the car, honey. I'll just wait out here, and you go take notes for us. But So that whole issue is going on, and then what, here's what happens in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, that would be Christian talk, for they really argued a lot. They got heated. They really had some strong disagreements. No small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were... 
appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So here's the background. Here's the, think geography for a second and think context. Paul and Barnabas are about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where kind of Christianity started to explode. That's where the apostles are. That's where a lot of the elders are. Jerusalem is still kind of headquarters. But there's a town 300 miles north called Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are seeing phenomenal things happen. All, it's, it was like the center of Gentile Christianity. This whole episode is somewhere about 15 to 20 years after the resurrection. And so the gospel is just spread all over the place. And so what happens is these people go into Antioch and go, you got to become Jew. They argue. And then finally, they're like, okay, go down to Jerusalem. Ask the leaders there about this whole question. That's why theologians call this whole episode we're looking at today the Jerusalem Council. All right? Jerusalem Council, what it was called. I would say for, for us... Um, Probably uh, 1992 for Biltmore Church, that was our uh, Jerusalem council, and we'll see why here in a second. Let me go through a few more verses. Uh, Go to verse 6, yeah. So here's what happens. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, see, they continued to argue, and you know, you can argue, you can disagree, and you can argue, and you're trying to get the right answer. Peter stood up and said to them, now what you're going to see here in the next couple minutes, you're going to see four church leaders. You're going to see Peter, you're going to see Paul, you're going to see Barnabas, and then you're finally you're going to see the half-brother of Jesus, James. They all stand up and say basically the same thing, and that is salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus, period. All right, That's what they're going to stand up and say. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, uh, if you're trying to, trying to figure out the whole chronology and stuff of Acts, the, he's probably referring back a few chapters in chapter 10 where he actually led Cornelius and God showed him that, listen, it's not about what foods you eat. It's not about all this stuff. It's, you know what? It's about the gospel. It's about grace. It's about Christ and all that other stuff. That's just a matter of conscience. And so he leads Cornelius to Christ and that's what he's referring to. But verse 8. And here's the, here's the question. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. They come to faith in Christ. God gives you the Holy Spirit, just like he did when you embraced Christ. Now, here's the part I want you to see. Nine and ten are crucial. And he made no distinction between us and them. Us is the Jewish people. He's talking as a Jew. Them are the Gentile people. So, again, he's talking. He's talking about an argument, basically. is like, what do you have to do on top of this to be either a Christian or pretty soon it's to be a good Christian. And here's what he said, having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's a great description of the God. Cleanse their hearts by faith, by faith in Jesus. And I think we got one more. Here's, here's the verse I want you to think about. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What's he saying? He's looking around. This is Peter, who's a Jew, looking back at his history. There were 613 different commands for the Jews. 613. And he's looking at him, going, Bro, I couldn't keep them. You couldn't keep them. Our fathers couldn't keep them. What makes us think we ought to test God by making these people also follow them as well? 613. There was like 350 some odd positive ones, like do this, and there was 260 some odd, don't do this. All of it's saying, listen, we can't, we can't even do the top 10. There's nobody in here that can obey even the 10 commandments, all right? Anybody, nobody in here can, we are guilty of all 10 of them. Don't make me start that. I mean, we can, we're guilty of all 10, all right? Everybody in here is coveted. 
you've coveted, you've wanted something somebody else had at some point, or you've been jealous of somebody getting something you wish you'd have had, don't even make me start all 10, and he's saying, you can't do it, I can't do it, so why are we going to make them do it? Which, by the way, a lot of, we've talked about this before, the, the law, the law, the law, when I talk about the law, I'm talking about both the moral law and the ritual law, all of that was never meant to save us. The law was not meant to save us. It was to show us that we needed a savior, that we cannot keep that law. So we need somebody who can keep that law to come alongside and actually do it. So, all right, a few more verses here. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. He's just putting down straight gospel. Verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul. So you start off, you start off, you got a guy named Peter. Peter says it. Then you got Paul, then you got Barnabas. As they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Remember, they're up there just seeing amazing work that's happening in the non-Jewish areas. Now, here's the part we're going to listen to. After they finished speaking, James replied. You're like, James, who is James? Now, this is actually, I wish we had more time. We mentioned it once before as well. James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is the leader of the Jerusalem church, all right? He's like, whatever you want to call it, he's the leader of the Jerusalem church, but he's also the half-brother of Jesus. But you also see in his story, this is a great little, little tidbit you don't oftentimes think about. James didn't even believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. But then after, I mean, we, talked, we joked about it. What would it take for your brother, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was Lord God and King? I mean, man, I got three, and I've never been tempted to think, you know what? I think my brother is Lord God and King. Never, ever, 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 ever were tempted to even think about that. But after the resurrection, James like, that's Lord God and King. And then he actually becomes a pastor and becomes a leader of the, uh, the early church. And so here's what, uh, do I see anything more about that? No, probably this. Let's go this. Here's, here's verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not, and this is key, this is key. This, is, this has got such a huge application to it. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now let that sink in for a second. When it says not trouble, here's some other translations and some other meanings. We should, it's the idea of not making it difficult, not putting unnecessary burdens on, not putting obstacles to people who are turning to God. Now here's what you gotta understand also is Peter and James, more than anybody else, understood they're talking to Jewish people who had a very long history, who had a rich heritage, who had traditions that they had grown up with, that had all of this stuff that was part of who they are. That was their identity for years. And again, this was what was called the Jerusalem Council, and Biltmore Church's Jerusalem Council was probably back in 1992, when believe it or not, this church actually voted on this. I can't believe they voted on it, but that's awesome. Because they're, it's like, when they were struggling, it's like, we have to unite around the gospel. The gospel is what we've got to be about. Not all this periphery stuff, not all this preferential stuff. We've got to be about the centrality of the gospel at our church. They actually voted. They made a motion and seconded a motion and voted, quote, to move out of our comfort zones. That is awesome. I've heard of thousands of churches voting to stay in their comfort zone. I've never heard of one saying, we are making a conscious decision. We are going to move out of our comfort zones. We are going to eliminate any man-made obstacles, even preferences, comfort zones. 
We are saying we do not want to make it unnecessarily difficult. Now listen, if the gospel offends, the gospel offends. They're not talking about compromise at all. They're talking about, you know what, we don't want to put anything to added extra stuff about us in there to get in the way. In the last 25 years, God has chosen to honor that, and that shows itself in a multitude of different ways. I'm going to give you a, a, a few now, and then I'll come back around some of the thornier ones here at the end. But I would say, even the way I'm talking right now is some degree about not wanting to put unnecessary obstacles, not making it overly difficult for people to either move along the continuum of discipleship or come to Christ for the first time. All right, You don't hear us use very, none of the preachers here really use any kind of super big language. It's not because we haven't been to school. It's like, it's not because I, it's like, you never hear words like transubstantiate. I mean, do you ever hear that? Nothing wrong with that at all. But what is that getting you that is making it overly difficult for somebody to understand the actual message of the gospel? I look back at some of the things that have happened over the decade or even the last three decades. Um, the reason that I use a particular Bible uh, translation, <laughs> all right, the reason I don't use a particular Bible translation as well, there's, there's myriad, but there's a reason I'm wanting that, that's, that's actually been translated in this century is because it's actually the way that you and I talk. All right. It would be unnecessarily difficult if I used a, lang- a Bible translation, while good, and if you use it, that's great. I'm just not going to use one that was translated like in the 1400s and uses King James or the Elizabethan English language. All right, Why? Because that's unnecessarily difficult. All right? I, don't wanna, I don't talk these and thousands. You know, I, nobody talks like that at all. All right, Unnecessarily difficult. There's a reason that after like one month, I'm like, this coat and tie is never coming back on again unless I'm marrying or burying you. You know why? It's because actually there was a conviction. There were some people we were trying to reach that thought, you know what? I can't clean myself up like that. I don't have a suit. I don't have a pretty dress to go to church. And the last thing I wanted to say, you know what? If you don't have yourself cleaned up and have a nice suit you can wear, then you can't come. That is hogwash. That is hogwash. It is trying to understand there's not this huge gap between the platform and the pew, all right? That there wasn't the Old Testament. The New Testament, everybody in here, if you know Christ, you are a priest. You're a called out nation. You're a chosen priest. That is who you are. And so you're like, all that stuff about a tie? Well, you know, and plus they're tied on the neck. But other than that, that's the, that's the theological reason. Um, a couple other things. We don't usually preach a lot of politics here. I was sitting there thinking, I was like, what could be more dangerous than this? You're taking religion, politics, drinking, and Baptist all in the same, you know, it's like, what could go wrong? Nothing could go wrong. So, uh, so let's just go there, all right? The reason we don't talk a ton about politics, now I'm not saying that the Bible should definitely educate your worldview. It certainly does, and it certainly should. And there are definitely times when a church needs to take a position, and, and we've done that before, all right? I've done I've, Every once in a while, there'll be something that's so clearly stated in the Bible, you can make a public statement on that. But when it comes to getting in and Trump, you know, a bunch of politicians up here talking about legislation this and legislation that, you don't hear a lot about that stuff. It's not because we don't have opinions, and it's not because we don't even have strong convictions. But here's the, I might be wrong about energy policy. You understand that? I might, that's very hard for me to even have that word coming up. I might be wrong. I might be wrong about Healthcare. I might be wrong about that stuff, but we will never be wrong about the gospel, okay? We'll never be wrong about the gospel. And here's the fear. The fear is, the fear is that in all the noise of talking about secondary issues, it will end up muting, it'll mute the main thing that we are about, and that is the mission and the message of the gospel, okay? It's not to say we won't do it at times, it just means we won't do it regularly. I've done that like three or four times, especially local stuff. I did that a couple first couple years. I've regretted it. I regretted it immediately. All right? 
And that, anyway, so <laughs> any more specific and I'll regret it. All right, so I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Um, here's a couple more things. Um, you know, bottom, let's see if you clap after this. Um, and not, not, uh, bottom line is you're trying not to make it overly hard for the person out there that we're trying to reach to think, I've got to become a Republican to come to that church. I've got to become a Democrat to come to that church. I've got to become an independent to come to that church. I am going to put an official policy position on what kind of, that's not where we are. Clear, clear, distinctive moral issues. Of course we will. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. You don't want to be the church in the 1850s that didn't speak up about slavery. You don't want to be the church in Germany that didn't stand up and talk about Hitler. But those are rare, clear things you've got to talk about. But not everything from this legislation to that legislation. So you won't hear a ton of politics. If you want my opinion, believe, ask me, and I will definitely tell you, all right? I will definitely tell you. So even facilities, uh, this goes to everything. Facilities, why do we have clean bathrooms? Because we don't want to make it overly hard. Man, do these people not even care about anything? Why do you have parking out there? Because you don't want to make it overly difficult. Why do you have a bunch of volunteers and children so that somebody doesn't come in there and go, man, there's like 51 kids in there and like one poor teacher in there. That's why we do that. All that stuff is not to make it overly hard. Why am I putting up burdens there that God doesn't put up? Uh, let me just, might as well just deal with this one while we're here. Uh, um, we dealt with it two years ago very clearly. Why do we not use Baptist all that much? Now, we're officially a Baptist church. We are. I don't know if you know that. We're officially a Baptist church. You're like, how could you be that? You're happier than, I'm just, so um, that's who we are. We do a lot of mission work with that. A lot of finances go towards sending missionaries all over the world. And on top of that, then specific missionaries that we partner with. Exactly. But here's what we talked about a few years ago. There's like three reasons, but real quickly, uh, the word Baptist doesn't even mean what it used to, by the way. 30 years ago, you'd go into a Baptist church and it was pretty much all the same. Everybody looked the same. Everybody sang the same songs. Everybody dressed the same. That's not the case anymore. I don't know if you've noticed that, but that ship has sailed, okay? It doesn't look the same anymore, number one. Number two, there's definitely, there's definitely a stereotype about what Baptists were. You don't believe that because... See, I, the, the longer you've been saved, the longer you've been saved, the easier it is for you to forget what it's like to be lost. And see, I didn't come to Christ till 17, so I know what it's like to have stereotypes about this is what this church is like. And what kind of the Baptist churches were is like, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't, you know, and if you don't, if you do that, you better not set foot in these doors. And I'm like, that's the same, that's the person we're trying to reach. That's the person we're trying to reach. We're not trying to protect from them. We're actually trying to reach them. So what good is it doing? And by the way, it's not about compromise. It's not, it's not. I think anybody would say we don't compromise anything at all. As a matter of fact, a third reason why we don't use the word Baptist that much is because some Baptists have actually got away from this book, all right? They think, you know what, it's super cool. Let's just kind of become relevant and get away from the Bible. We're like the opposite of that. The more we press into the Bible, it's just the Bible is always relevant. It's always relevant. We're the ones that aren't relevant sometimes, but the Bible's always relevant, so we're not getting away from that at all. So uh, I didn't anticipate a, a huge amount of uh, clapping from that one, so let me just go to verse 20. Here's what it says. You're like, well, what should we do? What should, what should we do? What should we do? All right, if we're not supposed to do that, what should we do? If we don't make unnecessary things, what do we do? Verse 20 gives us a great balance. At first, you're going to think, that's freaky, but listen, listen to what it says, the principle. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. You're like, okay, that's kind of weird. Here's what, the, here's what the basic decision that came down was. 
is church participation, those kind of things, really just comes down to really two different things. When it comes down to fellowship, when it comes down to unifying around the gospel, it basically reduced church participation down to two things. Number one is be careful what you, when he's talking about food sacrificed idols, he's like, be careful what you eat around your Jewish brothers, the ones that had come to, be careful what you do so you do not unnecessarily offend them. This is called don't let your Christian liberty trump your Christian love, okay? Christian liberty always is submissive. Christian liberty that, you know what? I can eat this and I can drink that. That always is submissive to the gospel witness and to your love for other Christians. So that's why it's like, he's like, don't do that. Don't do that around your Jewish brothers. You're like, what is the big deal? Quick little explanation here. Things polluted by idols the Gentiles came from a pagan background. So when they came to Christ, they're like, those idols, those are like, those are figments of people's imagination. So why would I not do? Because what they do is they would sacrifice the meat and then they'd sell it at a discount at the market. And so a Gentile Christian would go like, hey, ribeyes, 50% off. That's awesome. Why would I not eat that? But the Jewish brother over here, the Jewish brother over here would be going like, hey, you can't touch that. That thing was sacrificed because they came from a religious background. And they're like, do not... You can't touch that stuff. That thing was sacrificed to an idol. The Gentile guy's going, what are you talking about? 50 cent ribeyes. This is like awesome. It's like better than Boone's Corner. This is as good as it possibly can get. And so he's like, be careful what you eat around the Jewish brothers. And uh, here's what it basically means. That means that you ought to be gladly laying down your rights, your rights for the good and the flourishing of your brothers and sisters all the time. One's in your connect group, one's in your church. Like, you know what? I have a right to do X, Y, and Z, but I don't do that. I don't spend that. I don't drink that. Why? I don't do that so I don't offend the weaker brother. Read Romans 14 sometime. But the second thing was this. Is, and it was just like, don't be immoral. Don't be immoral. That's why he says sexual immorality. That's God's moral law. You're like, why did he pick out that one among all the other sins? It's because that one was the one from what that background they came from. That was super normal. It's kind of like today. It's like, well, it's no big deal about sleeping with somebody before you marry him. It's no big deal about having the gift of shakarosity. It's no big deal about all this stuff. And they're like, hey, be, be moral. And by the way, um, another quick rabbit chase. How many times have you been intimidated because somebody or some talk show host is like, yeah, that's what you Christians are like. You're always picking and choosing from the Bible. You talk about you believe in a Bible, it's authoritative, but you pick and choose. Usually they'll go to the book of Leviticus and they're like, yeah, you, 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 you hammer down here on like sexual morality, but over here, you're, you know, it talks about fabric and shellfish and all this other stuff. Hear me, listen to me, listen, listen. Two explanations. Number one, Christian theologians for years have seen a very distinct difference between the law, which was either ritualistic, which is kind of like the ceremonial law. A lot of them say ceremonial law. That's like all the sacrifices and the fabric, which was to be a shadow. It was to be a shadow of our sin and God's righteousness. That was fulfilled in Jesus. The book of Hebrews, you're like, what's the book of Hebrews about? The whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus is better. Jesus fulfilled all that stuff. And so you and I do not have a right to do like Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson went in there and literally clipped out parts of the Bible he didn't like. We do not have that right. What we have to do, though, is if God says that part right there is not relevant to you right now, that ceremonial law, Jesus fulfilled that, so don't do that anymore, then you and I have no right to actually continue to do it. That's the ceremonial law. So don't get intimidated. Don't have somebody get in your face and go, you guys are so inconsistent, perfectly consistent. And what happens there is, is a lot of power. You're like, man, this is the, this, like, what's the big deal about this? What happened is this is just Acts 15. 
And so the church just continues to flourish. Why? Because the power of unity. All right, so this is the... Uh, this is the infamous flashlight that I told you about a couple years ago when we moved out into the country. My wife got me because I have an awesome wife, and it is like, uh, let me see which one it's on now, okay? Okay, this is like, this is the one that's done where it's real, like a big, it's not a lot of power there, right? I mean, I can just go like this, and it's, you can't even see it anywhere because it's on that big high beam. So way a lot of times it's easy for the church to get convoluted and all this kind of stuff, but unity around the gospel means you just kind of, narrow it down and it gets real and then it's like <laughs> hey it's, it's kind of creepy isn't it over there all right so what is that right there that means i'm looking right here and hey get off march madness right there stop that uh, don't, don't, games aren't playing yet you're doing that right there why and that's power if you could actually harness this even more it'd become a laser and we like cut you in half for watching march madness so whole thing is the church is just kidding um church is church's power is in unity Again, what God has done, and I would say the thing I'm most amazed about among almost anything is the, is the unity amidst all the changes that have happened here over, over the years. I mean, I was just like, man, change after change after change after change. And you're like, how does that happen? The way it happens is, and I'll just give you kind of two quick action points. The way it happens is a church makes a decision, a Christian makes a decision to have one law, the law of love and the law of the gospel, that is over That is over all this other stuff, right? It's like when you get on a plane, you got two laws working against each other. You got the law of gravity that's like, stay down, stay down, stay down. But then you got the law of aerodynamics that's like through a bunch of different things and thrust and force and all this stuff. It's like it takes off. And what happens when you get on a plane is the plane, the law of aerodynamics, it doesn't get rid of the law of gravity. What happens is it just, it overtakes the law of gravity. That's what happens with a church on mission around the gospel, Okay. There's no way you don't get rid of diversity, nor should you, okay? Look around the room. Look around the room. We got old, young. A lot of people are like, you are the young church, and it's all about 22 and 25 and all millennials. It's really, you know the last starting point at this campus? There were five tables of senior adults, man. It's like, bless God for that. I mean, that is an awesome deal. You don't get rid of the diversity. Just in this room, you got black, white, Hispanic, Asian. You got old, young. You got all this stuff. You don't... Diversity is beautiful. Diversity is like heaven. You're like, I don't like diversity. You're not going to like heaven much, all right? If you really don't like diversity, you're not going to have to worry about going to heaven anyway. So the idea, the idea, the idea, though, is the idea is it's got to supersede it. So what does that look like for us at church? Two quick ones. All right, number one, remember it's about the mission and it's not about me. It's like that. It's like when you drive on the campus, it's not about, it's not about me. It's not about me. Now, all of us get blessed, including me. We get blessed by, I mean, just think about the music, man. I got blessed. I got my socks got blessed off today when they're up here singing Mighty Cross. It's like, oh, I mean, it's like, yeah, we're going to talk about worship in a week or two, okay? It overflows to us, but bottom line, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God, all right? And so here's what we talked about in week one. We talked about church is easy to go from mission-minded to maintenance-minded, and it happens to everybody unless you fight against it. I'll give you an example for you individually. Some of you got saved, let's just say, two years ago. And two years ago, all your friends, all the people that you were around, all of them were lost. And, and then now you're Christian. It's not that you tried to, but there was like a drift. There was a gravitational pull, and it pulled you away. And for some of you now, you've got like no non-Christian friends. And it's not because you don't like them. It's just because it drifted the other way. Why? Because you had a Bible study on Monday and it had music rehearsal on Wednesday and then you had uh, this thing on Thursday and you had, you had practice on Friday and you had a softball game on Saturday. Of course, you had church on Sunday and you love your connect group and all of a sudden you got five or six days and you, all, you, you, 
You can't call up three friends that aren't lost and actually say, hey, let's go get coffee right now. Now, granted, you're good friends. You're good friends. You're good, you're, you're good, close friends. You want them to be Christ followers to pull you along. But the same thing that happens with you happens in churches. And you go from mission-minded to inward. And it's like, it's about me, and it's about my preferences, and about what I like, and it's about my music, and, it's, and it just goes. And every church has to fight against it. I mean, all those lists, and we get on those lists sometimes, and we praise God for that. It's like, fastest growing or largest or this, that, and the other. If you look at those lists long enough, there's a bell curve. It's like up like a rocket, and if you don't continue to make adjustments, then what happens is, what happens is it's up like a rocket and down like a rock. And the adjustments are hard. I'll tell you what our adjustment is. Our adjustment is we hold hard and tight to the message. Message, message, message. We hold tight to the gospel. Methods we hold real loosely, okay? We are married to the message. We date the method, all right? Method we might break up with tomorrow. There's nothing sacrosanct about the methods. It's all about the message. So um, here's kind of where we are. Uh, I would just, let me let that one... Churches that will not do the due diligence to change preferences. Even churches that will not change their preferences and their methods, even though they're not reaching the next generation, are saying, in effect, I love my tradition more than I love my grandchildren. Yeah, we're not reaching anybody. We hadn't seen somebody in their teens baptized in like five years, but you know, bless God, we got stuff that I like. I, I'm saying I like my tradition more than I like my grandkids. Or even worse, I like my tradition more than I like somebody else's grandkids. That's what it's saying. You're saying, well, that's harsh. I'm saying that's, that's true. And it, what, I would say this 30 years, this, it's just funny to look back. I asked our resident theologian, our resident historian, uh, Carlos Sederlin. Um, he has uh, been the worship pastor here for like 25 years. He was here when church had like uh, 150 people here and they were bickering and arguing and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, what are some things that have changed? What are, I know the last 10 years, but what about before that? And here's just a quick list of them, all right? Obviously location from Summit Street to Hendersonville Road. In Hendersonville Road, you had to go to a gymnasium. Uh, then he came out here to Arden in 2000, then a multi-site at Swannanoa. East Asheville, by the way, is going to open in two weeks. Man, be praying for that. That's going to be awesome. Then four other ones from uh, Franklin, Hendersonville to West Asheville, including one going on right this second in a language that most of us could not even understand if we went in there. All right. Uh, music. All right. Music. Uh, that's kind of always the deal. In 1993, 1993, Carl moved some drums on the platform. Now, here's a little leadership tip. There's a pro tip. He moved, he moved the drums up on the platform, and they were up there with nobody playing them for three months. All right? He just moved them up there, and nobody played. And so people kind of got used to, hey, there's some drums up there. And then after a few months, like, is somebody ever going to play those drums? And so finally, when somebody came up and played them, like, well, bless God, we've been waiting for somebody. And before that, it was like, drums, we don't want no drums. Okay, that was like 1993, 1995, screens went up. I mean, some of you millennials are like, well, what was like? like it was, no screens, believe me. Screens in a worship center 25 years ago split churches. I can name five of them. They're like, we can't have that. If we're not reading it out of a book, it's not of God. You're like, that's crazy. I, I, I agree, it is crazy. Um, miscellaneous service times have changed. Ministry focus has changed. Um, pastors have changed. Senior pastors have changed. Uh, even big ministry focuses like going from CMCS, something that God used in a great way for many, many years, into more of a month-long uh, give to the city of Asheville and the, and the area of Western North Carolina and being a church for the city. All that stuff has changed. But 
what we've done and what you've done is you've said it's not about me, it's about mission. And here's, here's the last one. What I want you to do is I want you to recommit to love over legalism. Now that's what you see in the, that's what you see in the picture. Give me five, give me six minutes. Give me six minutes because we're going to hit some. I want to go quickly through here, but I thought, man, if I go quickly through stuff like alcohol, politics, and all this, that's like, I'm going to get shot. So let me just, give me six, seven minutes to go through this, all right? Love over legalism. Now listen carefully in the next five minutes so you don't, because if you send me an email and tell me, you said this when I didn't say this, I'm, I'm going to love you, all right? That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to love you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. So here's what was happening. The Jewish Christians, again, they were basically saying, these are Jewish Christians that had come up in the Jewish faith, and so they were like, to be a good Christian, you got to have Jesus plus something. you got to have Jesus plus this. And there's that natural drift toward works. I think Martin Luther said, you and I are hardwired for works righteousness. I've told you before, I'm a recovering Pharisee. And it's not just a one-time decision I made a long time ago. It's like, I'm going to be about grace. I have to go back to that virtually every week almost we're hardwired toward think all legalism is, it's one of two ways. Legalism on personal end, it's the idea that God loves me more because I did X, Y, and Z. God, and it could be good things. God loves me more because I read my Bible and I prayed this morning. God does not love you anymore because you read your Bible and prayed that morning. Right? He can't love you any more than he loves you in Christ right now. And you're like, well, well, well I'm not saying discipline's wrong. Discipline is great. Discipline is needed. Because some of you are like, well, I don't feel like reading my Bible, so I'm not going to read my Bible. That is a fail, all right? You go ahead and you read your Bible, even when you don't feel like reading your Bible. And as you read your Bible, you just confess to God, God, my heart has grown so hard, I don't even want to read your book anymore, but change my heart so I understand the grace and the acceptance I have in Jesus, so I want to get in the Word and read it once again. That's what you do. You don't just say, bag the Bible, I don't feel like it. Legalism can also be, I have a burden about something, I have a conviction about something that's not clearly taught in the Bible, and my conviction, my personal conviction, I'm placing on you as a burden. And if you don't act this certain way, again, I'm not talking about going against anything this says. I'm talking about gray areas, and there are some gray areas in the Bible. All right, some of you are like, there are no gray areas, you're a legalist, that's why. There are some gray areas in the Bible, all right? Romans 14, the whole chapter is about what he calls disputable issues. It's areas of disagreement that you might have a conscience for a variety of reasons about that maybe somebody doesn't share. Legalism is you putting that on them uh, in, in, a, in a very negative way instead of loving them through that. So let me take one, two, let me take, let me take a couple and we'll just probably, that's all I've got and, and pray for me, okay? So pray, pray for, let me, let me take, a, let me take, a, this is a gray area. Some of you are like, it's not a gray area. It is a gray area. It is a gray area, okay? And if it's not a gray area, you chapter and verse me. Just saying it's a gray area. Uh, let's just take, let's, let's take, <laughs> man, it's like so quiet. Somebody, some baby cries, something happened, all right? So, all right, let's just, let's talk about what I would call a disputable issue. It's obviously in dispute. It's just Baptists don't like to talk about it, but it's, it's in dispute. And let's just take the area of alcohol. Okay, let me take it one of two ways. On one hand, um, a teetotaler is like saying, you know what? It's never touched my lips. It never should touch anybody's lips. It is compromise. It is all of that. And let's take, it, let's take that side for a second. 
And it is super clear the Bible does warn against alcoholism or drinking too much alcohol. The Bible has a lot of very negative things to say about alcohol, about the dangers of alcohol. Uh, Some of you grew up and you saw that in your family and you need to be aware of that pull and you need to understand, you know what, I can't go there. And man, that's great on your part. Uh, Statistics, one in six people who drink have a serious alcohol problem. There's 100,000 alcohol-related deaths every single year. And so if your conscience is like, I cannot ever have any alcohol on my mouth, man, well done. That is very good. If your conscience is saying, that's not good for me, for family, for faith, for, for whatever, uh, or maybe I just don't want my weaker brother to stumble, man, that is, that is well done, well done. On the other hand, just because something is abused does not mean that you get rid of it totally. I mean, you can take 10 different areas, take things like sex. Sex is abused. We don't get rid of it. Uh, Food uh, is abused. We obviously do not get rid of that, okay? Um, Even though the Bible clearly warns about the dangers of alcohol, you see Jesus turning water into wine, it was not Welch's, bro. It was not, it wasn't water into Welch's, no. Some of you are like, well, you know, the alcohol back there was different. It was different. Now, that is true. It was much, 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 much weaker than most of the, than that gin and tonic you're having now. That's much, much weaker than that. But it still was alcohol. Paul tells Timothy, take some alcohol, some wine for your stomach. The book of Psalms oftentimes correlates wine with celebration, even good and godly celebration. So like, what's the, is it, what are you saying? Are you saying do it or don't do it or do it or don't do it? I'm, all I'm saying is this. Uh, there, if, you, uh, if your attitude right now is like, woo, I can't wait to break that thing out at Connect Group. Um, <laughs> wrong. Number one, it's not allowed. It's not allowed. It's not allowed, all right? It's not allowed. Remember, your Christian, your Christian liberty, your Christian liberty stops at the gospel, the gospel witness. It stops there as well as your Christian love for your weaker brother or sister, okay? You know, if, you're like, if that's your attitude, you know, you have, you have no idea what it means to actually lay down some of your rights for the flourishing of your brother or sister. That's what the Bible actually calls us to. You lay down some rights so that it does not offend somebody else. So yeah, do you change some actions even though you are okay to do it? Yes, you do. You actually do change some of your actions. There's some things you ought to be doing almost every week. I'm not doing that, not because it's wrong for me and my conscience convicts me of that, but I know it would bring somebody else down. That is called Christian community, okay? That's Christian love and that is Christian community. Let me do one more and then, uh, man, I, I, gotta, I gotta go to lunch and you, got, you gotta go to lunch too. So let me, let me do politics. While we're there, okay, while we're there, let me, do, re, let me return to politics. Do we want a biblical worldview? Yes. Is there a time to speak as a church? Yes. Is policy messy? Yes, it is. Again, we might be wrong. We might be wrong about a policy. We're not wrong at all about the gospel, okay? So uh, you see Jesus occasionally dealing with politics, but nine times out of 10, he refrains from getting sucked into some traps that people actually tried to get him into. The apostle Paul, who wrote about half the New Testament, and he lived in a place of the Roman Empire that had horrible ills in its society, and yet you see very, very, very little very little of him. He's not engaging a bunch with, in political discourse. Even if you vehemently disagree with somebody else, that is fine. It should not over, over, overbear your gospel unity. I'll give you one example. 
You got, you got in the 12 disciples, you got Matthew the Zealot, and you got, uh, you got uh, Simon the Zealot, and you got Matthew the tax collector. You could not have any more politically polar opposites than those two. Matthew the tax collector, he's like a right-wing establishment kind of person. Simon the Zealot is like your super leftist, progressive, educated at Cal Berkeley. That's who he is. And yet they still understood it was about the mission. It was about the gospel. They probably had some pretty heated conversations around the campfire for sure. And it's okay to have that, but it never rises to the level of uh, what the gospel is. And, and it goes through all those other gray areas, gray areas. I mean, you're like, you know, people are like, what about smoking and cigars and that is, you know, smoking sends you to hell. Is somebody joking, you know, it's not going to send you to hell. It makes you smell like you've been to hell, but it's not going to send you to actually hell. All right. Others of you are like, well, your body's a temple. Okay. As long as you don't like eat Twinkies and Doritos, we'll go with that argument as well. But all right, if you're like throwing down, if you're throwing down Chipotle, yeah, that does not count. All right. So sorry to my Chipotle friends. That was wrong. All right. Here's, here's the way we win. Win with this. On the majors, take action. On the majors, we take action, whether it be a doctrinal stance we need to take about some clear-cut biblical issues, or whether it be you with a friend, you have a friend who's about to drive her life over the cliff, uh, her family, her testimony. You don't just sit there and twiddle your thumbs and like, oh, Christian community, we just kind of, hey, let's accept. No, you, you rescue. Talked about that a few weeks ago. But here's the one. On the minors, you show acceptance acceptance, except minor issues are like preferences, music styles, gray areas, those things like, you know what? Uh, I'm still growing. I'm still growing. I'm, you know, I don't think that's best, but I can't really give you a chapter or a verse on it. I don't think that's best, but, but uh, here's the bottom line is this. All things, you do all things in love. You do all things in love. Whether it's major or minor, you do all things in love. Those of you that really kind of push against that, what's the whole purpose of the law? Jesus was asked that question. How do you, how do you sum up the whole law? He's like, love God and love your, love your neighbor. So if it's not filtered through those two filters, those two metrics, then all your law stuff is just, uh, it's, it's mixed up anyway.